0: Hello, my name is Dr. Wendy Slusser, and I'm excited to share with you the Semo Healthy Campus Initiative Health Equity Seminar podcast series. This podcast will bring thought-provoking discussions around topics like food apartheid and what are the benefits of playing as an adult. This seminar series will explore how communities reduce health inequities by building empathy. Universal access to fresh, healthy food is at the foundation of a healthy and equitable society. However, in our current state, access to nutritious food is shaped by a person's zip code, socioeconomic position, and race. We live in a society where access to nutritious food has been intentionally denied to Black, poor, and other marginalized communities through systemic discrimination. Karen Washington and other food justice activists call this food apartheid. In our second health equity seminar, we bring to you a dynamite conversation with activist and farmer, Karen Washington, co-founder of Koji BBQ Chef Roy Choi, and Dr. May Wang, health equity expert, and Dr. Getz Wolf, professor in equitable economic development. Join us as we chat about how we can move towards food and health justice in a food apartheid.
1: So today's event is the second installment of the SEML-HCI's Health Equity Seminar Series. So this series was inspired by the 2020 SEML-HCI Health Equity Summit that virtually brought together over 150 students, faculty, and staff leaders from across the whole University of California system, Cal States, and California community colleges to discuss and envision a more equitable future. So you can stay tuned for more health equity seminars that are going to be held throughout this academic year. So throughout this seminar series, the Semel HCI wants to provoke meaningful conversation and also engagement around how our community can foster health and well-being at UCLA and beyond. Of course, this year has been rough. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, resulting economic dislocations, and deep-rooted inequalities have been really heightened by these crises and have all converged in a way. That is having and is going to really continue to have tremendous impact on our community. So as the nation's leading public university, UCLA is really uniquely poised and also we feel morally obligated to contribute to building healthy, economically just, and anti-racist community. So over the next 90 minutes, our vision is to create a space where we can have a really critical and thought-provoking conversation about inequities in our food system and what we can do to initiate change. So before we get started, I want to take a moment to acknowledge our partners who've really made this event possible. First of all, Lauren Hiller, who's a graduate student in urban planning and lead of the Pod, who I I work very closely with, who's made this whole event happen. Wendy Slusser, Megan Wayne, and Katie Imbury for bringing equity to the forefront through the 2020 Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Health Equity Summit and the new Health Equity Seminar Series also Semel hci and UCLA Food Studies for funding, and of course, all of you for joining the conversation today. So I'm going to introduce our panelists and then we'll, um, we'll jump into the discussion. We're so delighted to have such experts with us today who come from a wide range of fields and specialties in the food community. So Dr. Mei Wang is a professor of community health sciences at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. She's an expert on environmental determinants of diet-related conditions, immigrant food-related behaviors, and choices, and health equity. Getz-Wolf is a lecturer in urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. He brings his rich expertise in, in equity and economic development, organized labor, and labor practices in the food industry. Karen Washington is joining us all the way from New York. Uh, She's a farmer and activist and co-founder of Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York. Karen has been a leader in urban and community farming and building power in Black farmer organizations, such as through her work as co-founder of Black Urban Growers. Last but not least, Chef Roy Choi is the co-founder of Koji Barbecue, host of KCT's Broken Bread and co-host of Netflix's The Chef Show. His Koji Barbecue truck really spearheaded the modern food truck movement, merging food and social media with community and honoring the street food culture that laid the path before him. Moderating conversation today in a slight turn of events is going to be myself and Dr. Wendy Slusser. I'm extremely grateful that Wendy is, has jumped on board as moderator at this last minute. She is Associate Vice Provost for the semi Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA and Clinical Professor of Pediatrics in the Schools of Medicine and Public Health here at UCLA. Wendy is also a pediatrician, host of the Live Well podcast She's been involved in making films um, as an advocate for nutrition and health of underserved communities. So again, thank you, Wendy, for so quickly pivoting to moderate the conversation today. So without further ado, let's begin. I'll start off just, I think, with sort of an introductory question. If all of the panelists could just take a moment to tell us about what inspired your work at this intersection of food equity and health equity. Karen, do you want to jump in?
2: Yeah, definitely. So um, I live in a low-income neighborhood, and I'm a farmer. And I was, I looked at the food system, look at the food that was in my community, and saw how when I went to my friends who are white and privileged, how their food was different, and then come back to my community to look at the food that was in my community, I knew that something was wrong because time and time again, I was told that the food system was broken and it needed to be fixed. And I was drinking that Kool-Aid and I realized that wasn't the truth, that the food system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a care system based on race, color of one skin, based on where they live, demographics, and based on how much money they had. And so when people were telling me that the food system needed to be fixed, I was drinking a Kool-Aid and I said, no, it doesn't need to be fixed. It needs to change. And that change needs to come from a power dynamic shift from the hands of the people that have the power over in our food system, which is a few, a few handful of people control our food system back into the hands of the people who are impacted the most. And then I also realized that as a farmer, that I couldn't grow food alone because food has so many intersections. There was intersection in my community health, the environment, education, economics, all these things. And so I felt that it was time for me to be more vocal and be more participant in, acti- in my activism and then to shout out the food and then the food and social justice inequities that I
3: saw a long way. I guess for me, it's a uh, kind of threefold. One is I, I grew up in these communities. And in many ways, when we talk about food injustice and justice and lack of access, it the way that it's written, it, it's written as if it's something separate or coming top down. And and especially being in the food industry and as a chef, a lot of people in the industry, from distributors to chefs to operators, speak of food deserts or whatever the case may be as something that is removed for them that they have to help in some sort of kind of charity way or whatever the case may be. But what, what I realized is that I'm not removed from it. This is where I'm from. And the only difference is that I was had the fortunate ability to work and become a chef. And so I, it took me a long time to figure that out. And the way I figured it out was when I was running the truck and going out to the neighborhoods to feed, you know, it was right there in front of me. So it wasn't something that I kind of, kind of created intellectually in my mind. It was something that was right in front of me. It was my friends, my families, my neighborhoods, my streets, my blocks. And um, I was kind of driving through and going through all of this press and attention about what Kogi was doing, but I was um, but I was in the middle of this epidemic of of people not getting good food, and so that that pushed me to a situation where I felt like my purpose in life was to whatever it is that I was able to accomplish, that I had to shift all of my energies towards not being a chef for myself or for ego or for accomplishment, but being a chef for the people, and that all happened. On the streets, it all happened from the exchange and the conversations and the the food that I was handing to people, and it just brought my life full circle. Because as a and I'll end with this: as a young kid growing up, I was oh, even though we didn't have much, I was always a giver, and I I was always and as I grew and became a chef, I I always just tried to give people everything I have because in the kitchen, even if you don't have many means or much money, you always have a surplus of things, and I I. I never understood the idea of hoarding things. I, I, even before, way before Kogi, even before I had this life changing moment, I was always giving things away and, and I'd always get in trouble for it, you know? Um, and I didn't, I didn't have an explanation at that time as to what I was trying to do. And it took this kind of revolutionary moment of being in a truck to, to connect the purpose. And this thing that was within me. So now that I've found it, this is the way that I live my life. I can't separate the two.
1: Thank you. Gats, do you wanna jump in? Okay.
4: First of all, I really wanna say how glad I'm to be part of this panel. I think I'm gonna learn a lot just by being with these wonderful people. Uh, my history of this point of intersection really goes way back when I was teaching at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. And I'd always done some home gardening, things of that sort. And then there was an opportunity for space that we could create a community garden. And uh, just cutting to the chase on this, what we discovered, what I discovered, was that the folks who came in to garden had some very different trajectories or perspectives. There were folks like me who grew broccoli and lettuce and tomatoes and things of that sort, but members from the Black community who were right adjacent to where the garden was, they grew things which were more pertinent to their lives, such as beans and corn and things of that sort. And it was at that point I recognized that there really are some divisions among populations and the extent to which the populations are being responsive to. Then my continued involvement with labor, working on behalf of uh, working communities, I came to realize the extent to which that the whole food system, from the point of growing crops to the final point of serving the, uh, the, the results of that, uh, have within them a structure of bias against working people, against poor people, against people of color. And so I really became very much interested in those issues. I was one of the first members of the L.A. Food Policy Council. And from that point on, I always uh, would be the troublemaker who said, no, it's not a food desert. It's food apartheid. And just as Karen uh, suggested, these results are the conscious results of public policy. Uh, from a point of view urban planning, it really is a manifestation of the way in which the power structure essentially shoves some people aside and leaves them to survive as best they can. And so my interest in this intersection is trying to make a difference so that we don't have that kind of uh, displacement, the neglect of of people and families because they don't have access to power. Ultimately, what we're really talking about is who has the power to do things.
5: And May. Yeah, so I kind of echo Gaz in that I, I feel very honored to be here today, just learning from everyone. I think originally I come from Singapore and I came here really to study public health community nutrition at the time. Um, I was at Iowa State and I remember my first visit at a weight clinic coming from Singapore where I thought, my gosh, this is such a wealthy country. And then I was at a weight clinic and I saw the poverty and I was frankly really shocked. And and so I kind of, at the time, we were really trained to do more nutrition education. And as I did counseling, I realized there was such big factors. I'll never forget the day a woman came in, and I was training, and she really wanted to go to a happy house. It was clear she there was domestic violence. And I spent 45 minutes trying to figure out how to get her to a happy house. There was no referral system, et cetera. So that, I think, got me thinking is a much larger picture, there much bigger issues. And then very soon, by the 1990s, Isabel Contento had published this seminal paper where she showed very clearly that we were pretty good at nutrition education. We could change people's knowledge and their attitudes even, but not their behaviors. And this was about the same time when, when people were looking at the food environment. And then I think... Late in the 80s, early 90s, David Trout published a report about the redlining of supermarkets. And then we really got into the environmental aspects of food and excess. And this is then kind of let us think about the social determinants of nutrition and health. And I think Karen's work on food apartheid, et cetera, I think it really addresses some of the systemic issues in the food system that limits access to you know, the fresh, healthy foods.
1: Thank you all. So, so the the terminology of food apartheid versus food deserts was touched upon a, a couple of times in your introductions, but I'd love to have you expand on that and give the audience a little bit more historical context for some of us who might not be as familiar with this terminology and way of thinking about food apartheid versus food deserts. And Karen, is that something you could expand on? Heck yeah. Because I don't live in a desert. When I first heard that term, (laughs) food desert, it's like,
2: what? I had to call my homies in Oakland, Detroit, Philly, Chicago. We live in a desert. And it's like, you know, it's always outside of terms that come and explain exactly what we're feeling, where we live. It's an outside term to determine that there is limited access to food or a grocery store. And heck, we do have food. We have the junk food, the processed food, the fast food. We don't have healthy food options. So I coined the term food apartheid because when you say food deserts, you're being academic. When you say food apartheid, it's like, what? What is that? And I wanted wanted people to have a further conversation breaking down the food system in such a way that we talk about race that we talk about income inequality, that we talk about where people live, that we talk about resources, that we talk about land grabbing, all these things that intersect our food system and have a concrete conversation about what is wrong. The greatest country in the world will be growing us food, we waste enough food, that food is not getting down to the people that need it the most. Secondly, we in our in, in communities of color, marginalized community, we have a charity-based subsidized food system. Everybody, it doesn't take rocket science, everybody knows where the junk food goes. And everyone knows where the quote, quote, fresh produce go. And so we need to have these conversations around why this is happening. And so, Coin Food Apartheid is giving everyone's attention about having a conversation around our food system. Thanks for asking. I, I'd just,
4: just like to add to Karen's excellent points, namely that Food apartheid seeks to draw attention to the fact that the condition under which minorities and poor communities are left out is the result of conscious policies. We need more than a conversation. We need a recognition of power, and power has been employed by those who have the resources to determine where people live. Redlining is a notorious element. We just need to look at LA and how parts of South LA have been created uh, as places where people don't want to invest. We have the result where supermarkets figure that they aren't going to get as much money in trade if they locate in those markets, in those areas, so they leave the area, although probably they could be successful. But underlying all this is what bothers me and, and, and similar to Karen is that food desert is more than an academic term. It is essentially a characterization which asks us to accept that there's some sort of natural process. Clearly, it is not a natural process. It is a result of public policy, people with the resources to direct where the community is going to go and who and how people benefit from that.
3: Um, I mean, Karen and Getz said it all. All I can add is that words matter. And by by saying apartheid, it, it shows how powerful and that it's on purpose. You know, and as Getz just mentioned, when you say desert, it makes it docile. and makes it seem as if, you know, there's nothing you can do about it or that you just were born into this environment. But a word like apartheid really clearly points out that this is on purpose and it hits a nerve it's very important for that nerve to be hit because if we don't acknowledge that it's on purpose, then we will never get to the root of the problem.
1: Well, speaking of LA communities, Roy, you've really had quite extensive experience through all of your ventures, Kogi, local, also Broken Bread. Can you tell us more about how you identified these amazing people that you've interviewed in Broken Bread and what's been the most surprising discovery you've learned through the show?
3: Well, everything that I tried to be a part of I mean I'm not as smart as all y'all <laughs> you know I'm not an academic I'm not an intellectual but I'm on the ground every day you know my strength is not is not my intellect and my brain but my strength is my heart so what I what I try to do is with whatever position that I'm in I try to use my heart and my love to guide me you know and I try to be in many ways my own oversight committee and I question every move and decision that we make as an organization and anyone that I collaborate with are we doing things to care for people you know and to to bring good and and love into this into this universe so that extends to to everything that I do to the food that I serve to the to the places that I that I'm fortunate enough to be a part of the neighborhoods that I choose to serve food in the family members and and friends and and people that are employed within companies that I'm a part of. Everything is about community. So I try to play the dichotomy of, of small, each one teach one with with large global messaging. So the one thing that I tried to, to offer or the thing that I can contribute is that I've been put in this position that I have feet in many different worlds and mainly in two big worlds. I have a very big kind of entertainment, social media platform where I can get messages across very quickly. And and they can go viral, but at the same time, I'm living day by day, person by person, step by step on the ground, so I can relay what's really going on. Um, but I can also um, bring attention to that. So that that's what happened with local in many ways, which was a, an attempt to to beat fast food at its own game, which was cook healthy fast food with all natural ingredients, employ from the neighborhood, by the neighborhood, of the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, and um, you know, it's continuing to evolve. A lot of times within business, everything is so binary. It's either success or failure. You know, local existed for three years as a storefront, but now it's growing into a delivery service app. And then that, that grew on into the show Broken Bread. About three years ago, I was given the opportunity to host my first show and it, it felt right to do Broken Bread as the first show because it was within in alignment with public television. Being with public television, it meant that I didn't have to succumb to the pressures of advertisers or viewership or ratings that I could just make, you know, a show that fucking mattered that I believed in and that represented the people. I'm not good with like politics and arguing and stuff. So it's like everything felt so decisive and everything was about someone wanting to win an argument versus just, just trying to help it and fix it. So we just took a different approach. We took the approach of let's find these, um, Issues and problems that are within our food system. And let's just go and find people that are doing good things about it on the ground, no matter how small or big. So it, it ranged from things like homeboy industry and beyond meat, you know, addressing sustainability all the way to Olympia offset at supermarket delivering 15 bags of produce a week. You know, so and we just tried to find that in, in our our Approach was instead of trying to, again, academically argue the point, let's be storytellers. So Broken Bread really became a kind of a poetic storyteller, kind of like, I don't know, like the moth or something. I don't know, just something where we could separate ourselves and really go into the stories and let the stories and the people show the impact and the power of what's going on. What surprised me about it is that the show really resonated with a lot of people. We didn't, it, being on public television, it didn't get like the viewership of like a Netflix or whatever, but it really, it found its way almost like a like a vine searching for water. It found its way to people's laptops and phones and screens, you know, and it really resonated and it just showed me that these stories matter and that we can find a lane for them in, in entertainment.
0: Roy, that was really powerful comments. And I think it really demonstrates how translating your practice to something where you could then telegraph it to a larger community is incredible. And you did that with local and you also are doing it now with your communication skills, not just through social media, but obviously through programming. It's really. uh,
3: Yeah. I'm I'm evolving and I'm just trying to be, trying to be a voice for those that don't have the voice because a lot of us that don't have the voice, the, the neighborhoods that I represent are the ones that are being marginalized and manipulated. And so I'm just trying to be one while I have people that pay attention to me that I can I can speak for.
0: Fantastic. So, you know, sort of along those lines, I'd like to ask May a question about translating her research to practice as well and I'd like to understand the relationship or the differences and the commonalities between health equity and food equity. What do those first of all those phrases mean? Because I think we, as Karen pointed out, it's really important to understand what we're saying. And then also, where does that take us, these concepts of food equity and health equity? And how are you managing to create more equity?
5: Thank you, Wendy. You must be reading my mind because I actually wanted to comment on Roy's story. And I agree with you, Wendy, that the message that Roy's sending is incredibly powerful. And, you know, Roy, I think you had mentioned that what you do comes from the heart. And I think this is where when we do evaluation of programs from an academic perspective, we have failed to really do a good evaluation of the people involved in implementing programs. So there is this emerging field that we call implementation science. It's, you know, I'm not sure if I like the term, but it's really about trying to understand why we have developed all these interventions that we show they work in a very pristine setting, and then when we try to scale it up, it almost always fails. So, on average, it takes about 17 years to actually to scale up an intervention. And why is that so? I think I spent quite a bit of time, you know, thinking about this and working on this um, last year when I was on sabbatical. And one of the issues is when we do program evaluations, what is funded by NIH, what is valued is the outcome, but we don't really get into the process. Who are the people who implement these programs, right? So Homeboy Industries, for example, what Roy's been doing, it's the process of what they're doing, they've been doing, but also the people who make that kind of commitment. And we don't don't document that. So it's kind of like, you know, You teach a class, right, and you give somebody the syllabus and somebody else teaches it without the same kind of passion, without the same kind of interest, and they fail because they're kind of just following words and just kind of guidelines. And so I've just been trying to think, how do we do a much better job of evaluating the people involved in the implementation of programs so that when we scale them up, we consider all of those factors? So in terms of food equity and health equity, what does equity mean, actually? Equity, we're talking about giving everybody a fair chance. And it is different from equality, right? It's trying to figure out how do we level that playing field? How do we provide everybody with an opportunity to have the best food possible? And this is where we kind of really get into into systems, you know, into policies. And if you think about, the current food policy that we have in the in this country that we've had for decades is all been tied to food subsidies, agricultural subsidies. And we know the situation has changed so much from a hundred years ago. Who is benefiting most from agricultural subsidies? It's not independent farmers. It's really every businesses, right? And and I guess the question is why does it take so long for us? to change these policies?
2: I definitely want to chime in on that. Let me tell you something. This, the food system is dominated by an industrial food system. Like I said, the processed food, junk food, fast food, subsidized, charity-based food system. And the thing is, is that we have to shift the power, P-O-W-E-R, and it, it is hard to do. People in power is hard to do because it's a drug. People want to hold on to that power. They don't want to see black and brown people getting some power. What? And so, like I said, the food system has to shift and it has to shift through the power dynamic. And that shift has to come so that the people in the community, people who have been marginalized with people who have power over them, now have power. So when we talk about food justice and food sovereignty, that's what it is, It's taking back that power. Now, it's going to be hard, but I tell people three things when it comes to power dynamics. Number one, those in power either have to share it, give it up, or you know what? Three, is going to be be taken away. It's a new revolution. And right now we're seeing before our eyes how food is being broadcast through, through COVID. Millions and millions of people on food lines. What? How is that in America? How is that in America? And at the end of the day, who profits from that? Who profits from the big ag profits from that? Big ag, big companies, it's a huge marketplace. The biggest supplier of food, the biggest person are children. They know what the market is. The market, you know, get these children, a billion dollar business. They get in there and have their families buy the cereal they see on TV on the outside are covered with fruits and vegetables, but inside no nutritional value. Come on, folks. It's a new day, but let me tell you something. What this pandemic has done, we're not going back. We know now with essential food, we know now who are the essential workers, the farm workers, the farmers, the restaurant workers, the chefs, and also the healthcare professionals. We're not going back. So what I am mindful of What is this new iteration going to look like, especially in communities of color that are suffering the most? And I'm telling people, you know, communities, people, you know, grassroots, we gotta get together to maintain and understand collectively what our power is in community. And to make sure that outsiders now don't come and start taking advantage of what is happening with COVID, with the restaurants going down, that outsiders to come in and, and start that G word, you know what I'm talking about, the gentrification word that comes in and starts on the backs of people who are now trying really hard to survive to come in and change. This is a new way. This is a new way where communities of color now have to understand their power coming together and understanding if that we're going to change the school system, we have to be in the game,
0: seat at the table. And if we don't have a seat at the table, we're going to make our own table and our own seats. Thank you, Karen. Really, what you've set us up for is a great follow-up question for everyone, which is given the pandemic and some of the very urgent life and death priorities, how important is it to be providing fresh, healthy food versus just food to communities hardest hit by COVID at this time? And a follow-up question would be, should we also be allocating resources to sharing knowledge about nutrition and immunity at this time?
4: If I could just add on to your question, the practical problem, and I really appreciate Karen's point about the relevance of power. Um, we are dealing in an environment in which about half the country was fooled into voting for somebody who would not care about these issues. That's a sobering thing that we need to take into account as we move forward. The practical question is, how we are able to come to give voice to not only the people who are consuming the food, but the people who are preparing the food. Some of the amazing things that I witnessed over the past few months was the commandments from higher up, particularly from our administration, but others saying, well, you people who are essential workers, you need to get back to work. Uh, without regard to their health and safety and condition. I have a friend who is an organizer for United Farm Workers, and he has pointed out to his great frustration how farm workers are considered to be essentially dispensable workers. And I think we need to include that in our analysis of what's going on. It is an absolute tragedy that we could say, oh, we all want some healthy food. Let's have it grown by somebody not regarding who the people are going through that process who are suffering the consequences of COVID in the process of raising food. So I I just want to make sure that we look at the whole food chain to recognize that all along the way there are workers. And there are workers who are, whether they happen to be food packers or food growers or food distributors or people working in restaurants for that matter, all of them really need to be held in high regard beyond just heroes but providing them with the kind of security and the kind of protection that they need if they're going to provide us with healthy food
0: that's very well said gets and I was just looking at Roy because you're the chef for the people what did you, what how do you think
3: well there's a there, there's a simultaneous thing that we have to address you know one are the hard issues of the system being designed to be this divisive, and that it needs to change, and all the small steps that we have to change in the power and everything that we have to do, and then there's, I think, a larger philosophical thing that that maybe, hopefully, the pandemic can get us as a society to get to, which is we have to value things more, we have to value the food, each other, we have to value the culture of food and eating and what we're eating more as a society. You know, America is such a young country, but it's. It's built on so many horrible fallacies and, and misdirected things about what, what is important. And not only don't we value people's lives in what they're eating, but we don't value the benefits of what food could do and the detriments. Even though I grew up here in LA and in America, you know, I grew up from an immigrant family. So I was handed down all of these perspectives of like how food, you have to eat these things because this root and this shoot and this, this herb. Helps your brain and all this stuff. You know, as a kid, I was just like, as an Asian kid and just like, ah, you know, stop lecturing me. But, you know, immigrants are even from the home country. Even if there is no money, it doesn't compromise the culture of eating. You know, you would never just because you, don't, you can't afford a certain way of life doesn't mean that it determines that you only eat junk food and that you only eat preservatives and processed food. But for some reason here in America, one, again, it has been deliberate by the food systems to make sure that marginalized and black and brown communities only have access to this type of food. But then also we have to do a better job of putting value on how we eat. And so we have to see that it's, there's the direct effect of the junk food, but it's also that that has a trickle effect through everything, through attention span, through the way that, you know, young, young kids and students can process information to the social factors of it may be the only meal of the day for for a lot of kids within the inner cities and then that 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 only meal of the day has no nutritional value so then if you're stripping away systems and programs and it is the only meal and on top of that that meal has no nutritional value you know we have to speak in those terms in what it really affects it really has on kids and youth and future generations you know, as a chef and as someone who grew up in a family that was focused around food, that, that I can't even comprehend that type of thinking. That's not how I would ever treat anyone I love or anyone even I hate. You know, I'd even feed my enemies, you know. Uh, so it's like, I, I can't understand how we as a country don't value food in the way that maybe other, a lot of other commun- countries and communities do. So again, that doesn't take away from the actual work that we have to do. But I think we have to also think a little more philosophically about it and use this opportunity to change.
0: Thank you, Roy. I think that call to action is right on. And especially, I mean, people are starting to relate food insecurity is a result of climate change. And also, though, creating food security can actually improve climate change. For instance, less junk food, especially like growing corn and other things. And, you know, the corn syrup going into the sodas and, causing on uh, a healthy outcomes, all of that, if we could flip that and remove that from the less healthy, you know, the more processed foods based on soy and corn and all that, we could actually um, not only impact the health of our individuals, but our climate. So it's like, you're right, it's very interrelated, all of these different conversations. And so
3: a lot like of it that. is is the lack of exposure because again, of the apartheid and of the of the system that was created. You're not even giving millions and millions of kids and adults the opportunity to even like produce. They they haven't even tasted it because they don't have access to it. And then in replacement, you have all of the things that were mentioned, you know, the food that looks like fruit, but is really corn syrup. It, it's a big deal to to expose children to these real fruits, you know, and these real vegetables and done in a good way. You know, and here in America, when we do expose them to fruits and vegetables, and I'm speaking as a chef now, is we only expose them to the worst form of that, steamed broccoli. Right? Why not like walk fry that broccoli with some garlic and some chilies and some basil and, you know, and then introduce that shit to them, you know then they're going to love it. And so... Could I just add to Roy's excellent point?
4: Uh, my wife works uh, at a, a school-to-plate uh, program in, on the West Side, in a middle school. And what they have been trying to deal with is introducing students in the cafeteria to good food. But it's a real challenge. And I think Roy has put his finger on it. It is the way the food is prepared. We have, in one sense, a bureaucratic structure which has uh, essentially wiped out uh, school kitchens over the years, certainly the case in Los Angeles. And that what remains is something which is kind of limping along and requires people to be able to push a button for microwave food. Then to provide students with good food, the simple way is just putting things like uh, Roy suggests. It's almost like putting raw broccoli on a plate and say, "Go for it, kids," and that okay. doesn't work. On the other hand, in this case, my wife works with developing a community garden uh, at school in which the children are involved. These are uh, middle school. And they're involved in actually creating the food that is grown and then prepared. And then they can become excited about what it is. You would not think of kids as really being excited about things like kale or whatever. But because the kids figured out, oh, what we can do is add some olive oil and some garlic and cook it up and they like it, and they uh, include themselves. I mean, this is simply just one tale, but I think it it, it is kind of an on-the-ground example of the point that Roy is trying to make. There are different ways in which good quality food can be introduced, and it cannot simply rely upon just wheeling out the food uh, in in unprepared fashion, expecting kids to then embrace it. The other part is, too, that we have to recognize that uh, by the time Children are introduced to this good quality food when they are in uh, 11th and 12th grade. Their, their system has been contaminated with an addiction to sugar and salt and things of that sort. And so consequently, trying to change them may really be a, a, a futile effort. But rather, if you recognize that it's a ongoing process in which perhaps you start with the youngest kids who early on are exposed to good food, then it's possible to maintain that. That's hypothesis.
0: Thank you, guests. That's very eloquently said and I'll attest to the Mark Twain Garden Middle School that his wife works with is amazing. So, May, I think what we'd like you to make a comment. I know you had one and then we'll we're going to open it up to questions from the audience.
5: Thanks, Wendy. I actually was going to just kind of add on to what Gets was saying, you know, we did an evaluation of School Lunch Initiative in Berkeley many years ago. And some of you may have heard of the edible schoolyard that was established at King Middle School by Alice Waters and team. And I remember so clearly just watching these middle school kids in their cooking lessons, you know, they were quiet, they were attentive, And in 45 minutes, they have prepared a really delicious meal. And these are middle school kids. They were more attentive than you would expect middle school kids to be. And so, yes, it's definitely possible. I do want to say, though, a question I have is should we think of food as a right or as a privilege? And I think the the answer is obvious, right? We asked this question about health is health a privilege or right? And of course, all of us in public health agree that health should. a right and not a privilege, but it's the same, I think, with food. Should that be a right rather than than a privilege? And along those lines, given that we're in this pandemic, about education too, should that be a right or should that be a privilege? And we're seeing all these disparities magnified in this pandemic, right? Kids who don't have the access to the internet, whose parents may not be able to guide them as much. um, Partly because we don't have those, we didn't have those systems in place before this pandemic. So I think if anything, this pandemic has kind of really magnified all of these issues. And hopefully, you know, we realize that we have to make changes at a much larger policy level. And I think this is where I'm not sure how we're going to do that. I think maybe a little bit more hopeful than I was maybe a month ago, but still. That systems need to change. And I think to Karen's point, you know, the corporations, the marketing of food to children that we are one of the few countries in the world where we're not able to regulate food commercials that target children. Other countries do that. I, I don't understand why we can't do that. And, you know, and I teach this class where students have to actually evaluate food commercials that target children and the messages that are being sent are just horrific it's you know one commercial years ago it kind of went like this but i think they were promoting i can't remember what candy or something and they went don't tell the parent you know this is good it's a secret between you and me and i mean what message are you sending to the little kids besides the fact that oh this candy is great right and so I think all of, those, all of these factors kind of play into the inequities that we see with regard to food. So that intersectionality is so important. I think speaking as an academic, I think we haven't done a very good job of crossing disciplines. So I actually want to say thank you to you, Wendy, for having started this whole effort at UCLA to try to bring people together. And just having conversations with people from
3: all different aspects of food. And they drop in knowledge over
1: there. And great point. And targeting marketing as and messaging is such an important area. I think questions from the audience are coming up now. So thinking about cost structure is another important topic for food access. And Felix Felix asks, why is meat subsidized and not lettuce or carrots? So so can we think about the structure of, of subsidies as a way to reconfigure food access?
4: Could I just point out that the real issue that we're talking about is the pursuit of profits. We are naive to think that corporations produce these items because they think they're doing God's work. Uh, They're doing work that leads to greater profits and success. So consequently, we have these incredible subsidies for sugar uh, when it's imported to the United States. We have subsidies to the farm industry, the agricultural industry, as was pointed out earlier. It's no longer a little farmer, these are corporate farms and they live off the money that is provided by taxpayers to continue producing what they think is important, that is, soybeans and corn and things of that sort. The vegetable kind of production, which would really be in in a form that might even be uh, considered to be healthier, uh, is, is something which is just not on the plate. The reason it's not on the plate is because our Legislators who are acting out the interests of those who support them are not interested in that. Uh, one need only look at the discussions that take place in the agricultural committee, whether it's in the uh, House of Representatives or the Senate. These folks have a very different concern. They might occasionally nod to the benefit of food for the population, but the ultimate benefit is the resources that they are able to acquire for their own ends. And unless we, and Karen's point and Roy's point, have the power to challenge this, Karen's suggestion is a great one. Let's mobilize people so that they actually have the power to influence and change what is taking place, rather than just having, you know, and now let me suggest that while it's great for us to write papers and reports and things of that sort, and that may, might be distributed with a, a story in the New York Times, LA Times, until it hits people in the pocketbook, it's not going to have much impact.
5: If I may add, Gaz, I think this is something that is, I'm trying to understand this. I think, you know, having grown up in another country, this seems to be something that drives this society. And I think it has to change. You can't have this profit-driven motive behind these human basic necessities, right? Shelter, education, food, health. And that profit motive, you know, I, I don't know if anyone in the audience is from business school. I'll share that my undergraduate was in accounting, so I was in a business school. And there is a course called Cost Accounting where you really learn how to maximize your profits, you know, by having these combinations of certain products and how do you manipulate that profit margin, etc. So I have no doubts that that's being applied to food because when we talk about redlining of supermarkets, you know, if you really get into the literature, there's something called loss leaders, right? So this was in, in the 60s or 70s, I think. They were moving supermarkets out of some of the inner city neighborhoods. It was mostly profit driven. And then, well, first they moved in, the smaller stores closed. And then they moved out and the smaller stores were no longer there the ones that were selling, you know, the, the fresh fruit. So, I mean, if you go to other countries, many other countries, you'll see small stores selling fresh, you know, produce, etc. How did we get to this point where the farmer's market is seen as almost a privilege, right? And I, I know in LA County, the health department has been trying to put farmer's markets in in, in lower income areas and working with different stakeholders. And, and that's all fine and good. But the question I have is, how did we get to this point where this becomes a privilege. And I think Karen's work has has definitely addressed some of that. Just a lot more work to be done.
0: (laughs) I'd like to do a follow-up question then to Karen, because I think May and Getz were referring to much that you were saying. And, you know, there was a question that came actually very early on about how do we address the food apartheid? And I'm hearing a lot about policy and power what would you want to give all of us in the audience some sort of pearls of wisdom or experiences that you've had that you've seen actually make a difference that all of us could actually engage in, in in our own small way, but a big, big way too?
2: Well, thank you so much. They call me now Mama Karen, Mama K now because of the wisdom. <laughs> so first of all, I want to just sort of go back because in essence, When we look at the word agriculture, we've lost our culture. We've lost that word, in that word culture, we have lost that. Agriculture is a mix of so many different cultures. And as we have gone away from the land and away from our food, we have lost that aspect of culture, which is really, really important. And so what I try to tell young people, especially when it comes to culture and understanding the history behind agriculture, pick up those Samsung Galaxy phones and those iPhones and go to mama and papa and abuelo, Abuela, and sit down and, and record, record that history, record that history. How was it that you never had a grocery store or a supermarket and you got food? How is it when you were sick, you were able to go out in the field and get a plant? We need to have those conversations. And lastly, folks, we have given up our power as citizens, we have given up our power to elected officials and lobbyists, and the government. We have to understand the power that we have in community and start making people more accountable. We've extracted everything. We take all our resources and go out of our community. It's time now for people to start thinking about what is it that I can do in my community collectively to do entrepreneurship? Because me, in a low-income neighborhood, the power shift is... Financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and ownership. I tell people give three things to my community give us opportunity, give us land or business, and give us capital. And people who you deem once powerless become powerful. And so, folks, the power is right in our hands, and we have let people just take it from us. You know what? Shop with your dollars. You want to change the food system? If you want to change, don't shop where you know there's an industrial food system. Shop locally. Support local businesses. Speak up to your elected officials. Be speak up to your elected officials and demand change because they work for you, not the other way. And I think we've, we've gotten away from that power dynamic you know, my work in community organizing was all about grassroots organizing and making sure people were accountable. And we have to get back to that, especially as we move out of COVID. Thanks for that question. I hope I answered it.
3: (laughs) I mean, I totally agree with everything Karen said in May. Yes. And I've been thinking about this idea. It's a flawed idea still. So maybe you guys can help me grow it. But, you know, we're in a capitalist society, so we can't stop the the progression and the idea of profit. But there has to be in the kitchen, we have the term "in the weeds." So, like when a line or line cook or something is in the weeds, we have to jump in and get it out. It's like in dentistry, it's a root canal. You know, you have to go in, get it out, fix it. And so, the flawed part is the national park system. That's flawed because of of the relationship to the indigenous populations and what happened when it was formed. But but this idea of some protective agency that's outside of profit for certain fundamental things that are very important for us, like eating and, and feeding each other and food programs within schools. You know, maybe those aren't controlled by by lobbyists and politicians and business businesses. That we have some sort of agency or committee or protectiveness that, you know, and it could be somewhat separated, kind of like music industry is where you can't get rid of pop music You know, and you can't get rid of labels that are dominating the airways, but you can have a lane for independent radio and college radio. You know, and you can't have a you can have a lane for independent music and artists that is supported by certain radio stations. Let's say here in LA, like KCRW or any public radio station that that gives an audience for that, and there's funding behind that, and it and the whole purpose is not just to be profitable, but to to grow the art. Maybe there's something like that that can. I don't know exists from UCLA or whatever, but something that where there are people in power, extremely smart that have the you know credentials um, that can form a committee that can take a certain sector of our life that are basic necessities and not have those only driven by elected officials because elected officials are all corrupted by the money they get under the table. So that's my flawed idea.
0: I think visions and dreams and ideas never can be flawed. And especially when they come from the heart, like you are talking about, and what, how you lead. You know, I think that what each of you have been talking about is the fact that whenever yeah. there's a disaster or something, there's always opportunity to innovate. And I think that this pandemic is giving us that opportunity. And so, Having an idea like that, Roy, at this time, I think is a really great first step. And universities are a great place, I think, to become I, I a agree. think tank for great ideas that are not self-interests, or at least not influenced by the money of self-interests. So, thank you for that. And we'll have to percolate and marinate that and uh, get back to you. I was wondering, also, um, Roy, since you are finding all these amazing people and and highlighting their work. Are you open to having our listeners and others recommend or suggest people that you might want to meet for your show?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, we're working on the season two. It hasn't been officially announced, but hopefully everything goes through. And in season one of Broken Bread, that's how, you know, a lot of it was, you know, through research and, and relationships. Um, my whole relationship also with, everything that I do over the last decade has been about community and especially social, social community. So when we announced the show, the first thing that I did was here's the pre, I, you know, on Twitter and Instagram and everything I put out there, like, here's the premise of, you know, problems in the world, good people doing good things on the ground, help me find them. Do You know, anybody that's doing anything big or small, put it out there. And, you know, we literally got probably, Two to three thousand responses, you know. So on top of our research and our connections and our rolodex of everything, we had another uh, bank of people that were that were suggested by their friends or people that knew of them. And so uh, many of the people that ended up on the show came from that community outreach. Uh, for example, Mar from Dough Girl Pizza, Olympia from Supermarket, and, and a few others. But there were at least we had six episodes with about three to five guests per episode. And about six or seven of them came from the community outreach. So yes, please throw it up.
1: May and Getz, do you have any other thoughts on what people can do to take action on big and small levels? There's a few questions percolating in chat about how people can get involved in providing healthy food in their neighborhood from Eric's and also how people can can get involved in, to to make a difference.
4: There is a structural approach, uh, which is a change. The Los Angeles Food Policy Council about five years ago helped start something called the Good Food Purchasing Plan. And that took off. It has been actually uh, distributed to a number of different communities throughout the United States. And the concern about good food purchasing was who's doing the purchasing in the guard of the public sector, schools, prisons, things of that sort, um, who could put certain criteria on the food that they end up buying. So the criteria includes such things as nutritious, socially non-harmful to the environment, and also quality of uh, work life that people have. Uh, it now is headquartered uh, by one of my former students, Alexa Delwich, up in the Bay Area, and they are doing some great work in trying to distribute this process. One of the other criteria that they employ is that they uh, try to purchase so uh, as much as possible from small farmers, not going to agribusiness to get these, because agribusiness has a notorious ability to sort of absorb somebody else's plans and then distort them as along the way. So, I mean this is you know this is not going to be a game changer but it certainly is heading in the right direction encouraging the fact that hospitals schools prisons for that matter are also purchasing food which is of good quality and not harmful to the environment not harmful to workers and uh, at the same time encouraging the growth of that sector which otherwise might not grow as well under those circumstances so that's that's one thing that's going on
1: Thank you for that. And yeah, kind of builds on Karen's message to yeah, buy local and putting your dollars in a way to make change. May, did you want to comment?
5: Yeah, um, I agree with everything that gets it said. I just want to share an example of a group of amazing students that I've really had the privilege to kind of mentor the past few months. And I think a few of them may be in the audience. This is a group of students at, at Stanford who just kind of jumped into addressing food insecurity. One is in chemical engineering. They're all in different areas. They were just passionate. And what I have been so impressed with this group, they expanded their group. So they ended up with students from other institutions. I was referred to them. And I think what impressed me was they were meeting every Friday at eight o'clock in the morning. This was in April. And so they've kept up those meetings. And now they actually have set up a website called bayareacommunity.org. And they have just literally, I mean, I'm just trying to understand to together with some other faculty members in the group, how they've got this far um, and the sheer dedication, commitment. But I think what I also noticed about this group, there was this sense of humility and modesty and wanting to learn and recognizing that they make mistakes too, but also reaching out. And so that actually reminded me of not just students, but ourselves, um, I'm thinking about us in academia, that I think we have to be much better at listening, actively listening. And if you wanna cross disciplines, you wanna cross sectors and work with people who are not in our field, I think we have to be self-aware of our own biases, right? And I think every one of us has biases, whether we like it or not, but it's about being aware of them and then learning, being open to ideas that that may be contrary to what we might be used to and and trying to find that common ground. So today, my mentor, who is I've been so privileged to have this amazing mentor, um Zach Sarbergan, and he sent an article to me this morning from the New York Times, and the title is "Goodbye USDA." Hello, Department of Food and Well-Being. And that reminds me of, of this fact that, you know, whether we're in health or education or social work or nutrition or agriculture, I think we, we're all striving towards this common goal of well-being and, and I want to say happiness and wholesomeness. You know, years ago, a professor at Berkeley asked me, do you want to study happiness? And I kind of laughed. I said, how am I going to get through? How do you even study happiness, right? But it's, it's kind of realizing that we're actually all trying to get at that common goal. And when we find that our goals aligned, maybe that will help us be more open about learning from each other because these issues cannot be solved by any one discipline alone. You know, or any one group alone. I mean, we need to be cutting across academia, working with, with, you know, different groups and, and, and that the communication among people trained differently with different life experiences can be incredibly challenging. So I didn't exactly answer your question, but I thought it was an important point to make. Well, there have been a number of questions about.
0: People wondering not just what they can do as an advocate, but also like if they wanted to do this as a career to support healthful foods and where they could land. And it'd be great considering what a transdisciplinary group that sits right here on the Zoom panel to hear not just what advice you'd give to someone who's coming out of grad school or, or right out of college or even out of high school. But also, um, is there something you would recommend them reading or looking at if it's a movie, a show, or a book? Someone else asked about that. So maybe we can start with Karen.
2: Yes, yeah, so I put some books in the chat. Formula Black by Leah on um, The Color of Food by Tasha Bowens, and also some reference online, foodfirst.org and raceforward.org. Um, but right now, first of all, I'm just so honored to, to find out there's so many Black and brown young men and women that want to farm. I grew up where farming was deemed as slavery. And so there's so many young people that want to farm, but I just have to make them understand farming is hard, y'all. It is hard. It's labor intensive. So, you know, people come come to us with the little stars in their eyes and they're feeling glorified. It's hard work. I recommend that. If you want to get into it, we started in community gardens first before we, you know, started our farm up in uh, Chester, New York. If you you know, want to get into farming, do an apprenticeship. And then lastly, the recommendation is not to farm alone. I mean, you, at this point in time, you need um, manpower, women power. You need different ideas. But I was a physical therapist for 37 and a half years at the age of 60. I'm 66 now at the age of 60. I followed my dream. So if you're out there, follow your dream and then put your the dream out into the universe because that's how we were able to get land because we kept on asking. So if you have dreams and aspirations, put it out to the universe because someone is bound to
0: hear it. And so that's the um, advice I want to give to so many people that are out there that are interested in farming. Thank you, Karen. Um, I would attest to the fact that farming's hard. My dad grew up on a farm and now um me and my four siblings are farming it, (laughs) the land. And it's, yeah, it's wonderful, but it's also, uh, it's a hard work. Roy, what would your advice be for people wanting to go into this field and your field or other fields and also what books you might, or shows or TV shows you'd like to recommend?
3: Watch Broken (laughs) Brand. I don't know. I mean, there's so much. I
2: set you up for that one.
3: (laughs) There's so many good shows and books out there. I, I I think any. I think anything is better than nothing. There is great content. Go to your public television portals. Go to history files in, in your libraries. Watch any food show. Watch food shows from other countries. That's a good way to also expand your knowledge and your perspective. Because in many cases, you know, here in America, we have such an abundance of food shows. It just focuses on junk food and and like worse cooks and doing blunders and becoming comedy, you know, but if you look at a lot of food shows from other countries, they're, they're truly told in long, long form um, formats. And they go really deep into just where that village is, what's grown there, what they're eating, how long that farm has been there, you know, they even like profile the little dog and their puppies and, and all the food. And it's just, you know, it just goes on and on anything from South America to Asia to, you know, Anywhere. So that's what I would recommend as far as shows go. Yeah. Farming is hard. I want to echo that. And cooking is really hard too. So it's one of these things where we need more people within the field, but also, um, personally for you is if you want to be a part of the, the cooking world or the kitchen world, you can't look for like the quick, the quick return or the quick success. It is truly a lifelong. Thing, it's an education and knowledge process that grows with you forever. Uh, very much like, like a martial art form or being an educator like yourselves. You don't just stop at a certain point and it's not just like you can cram it all in and then achieve a status. And then, you know, we find that a lot now with just the emergence of so many food shows and, and, and YouTube channels and, you know, BuzzFeed things that surround food. Everything is just so compressed and it's, you know, everything has to be done within 30 seconds or um, there has to be a stopwatch or an alarm or a buzzer and everything has to be extremely aesthetically, like addictively presentable. And sometimes the process itself is not even important. It's just what is produced. So that's a reflection, maybe in many ways on what all the stuff we've been talking about today you know, our food system is like, we don't even want to talk about the process. We just want the results of what happens. So, you know, if you're going to get into the food world, you have to, you have to look at it as a long journey and you have to really be willing to learn the craft. It's weird because we're very much like, um, we're a craft like ceramics or iron making or glass blowing or woodworking, you know, like that's what food is, but. For some reason, it has this really weird attachment where it's also very glamorous, too. And I think the glamour of it confuses people when they get into it because they think that overnight you can become this genius, this magician, you know, that is able to concoct flavors out of thin air. And, you know, we have to step away from that a little bit, you know, and it's it's truly a form that takes a long time to develop very wise you gotta love it you, yeah. got, you gotta love being a part of it you can't and same thing with farming you can't complain about the hard work and so if that's something that you're willing to do i would suggest it's still a very old school profession so i would suggest finding places that inspire you food that inspires you kitchens that inspire you and then we're what i mean by old school is that we're still an industry that if you knock on the back door and say i'll do anything just let me in i just want to work here uh, we're still a very like apprentice-based type of industry. So all you got to do is knock on the back door. That's great advice. And I know Al
0: Farone, didn't you work with him at one point? Al Farone, our wonderful dining director.
3: Yeah. Shouts to Al Farone um, and your, your guys' food program there at UCLA and the continued excellence, in what he leads and what you guys believe in and in your dining commitment towards your students. Before Kogi, I, you know, I had a job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's <laughs> part uh, of the lot. That's what you were just describing. Yeah, it's a, you had yeah. to work your way up, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I actually had a job. And um, that job was for Hilton Hotels. And Al was the was the top guy or the corporate president of food and beverage for Hilton Hotels. And I was an up-and-coming chef that found my way in his office one day and we just really connected. Yeah, he's very proud of that.
0: So thank you, Ray. It's a two-way street, right? When people are mentored and mentee, you know, everyone feels. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah um, he mentored me a lot for sure.
0: It's great, um, May. What would you like to add to this conversation, and then gets
5: and then, then I know Amy will wrap it up. I'll make it really short. I just like want to echo what Karen said: follow your passion. You follow your passion, and it'll take you where, you know, you're going to have opportunities. And I would say maybe you also want to be aware and self-aware and kind of know what your skills and interests are, you know, and kind of to some extent also be realistic, you know, if you're really good with data and it doesn't sound very exciting, but there's a lot that you can contribute through data as well. If you love being out in the kitchen and cooking, just like one of my kids go all out and do that, you know? um, And if you're, an advocate and you just love talking to people, do that. But it's kind of finding, you know, what you're good at and then matching that up with, with your passion and just being really honest about what you do best in. And sometimes it's a hard sell because I think we like to believe that we can do anything and everything, right? And I always joke with my students, you know, my dream when I was a kid was to become a violinist because I'd never had a violin play. And when I did, it was so beautiful, but I'm tone deaf. There is absolutely no way I'm gonna be a violinist, right? Um, I can enjoy music and I found other ways to kind of express my interest and, and grow. So very nicely summed up, May.
0: Reminds me what everyone was talking about, the word apartheid, and like Karen said, that makes people stop and pause and find out more about something. The word eudaimonia, <laughs> which we use from the Mindwell pod living a life of meaning and purpose, which is really what you just summed up. So thank you, May, for that.
4: Getz? Following up on eudaimonia, I think it's really important for us to keep in mind the structural process by which we get the food. I really appreciate Karen and Roy's discourse about their own experiences and, in a sense, sort of the sophisticated understanding of the process. And I think the danger is for, especially younger people, students, to become so enchanted with the final outcome. And as Roy said, there's a process involved. And I think it's really critical for us to take into account how it is that we do create food, where it comes from, who the people are, to have a sense of of social justice, economic justice. And if we are only concerned with the quality of the food without thinking about how it got there, and the people who were involved in it, I think we're doing a larger disservice to to our planet.
1: Thank you, Getz, for those wise words, and I agree this is a very complex issue with the inequities in food, structural inequities, and food access issues that also interconnect with um, with the environment and climate change. So, um, this has been a fascinating conversation, and we're gonna have to wrap up now. We thank you all for being here, for being open and listening and learning, and we hope that you all will bring this momentum to change, not fix, the food system into your own communities, your own fields, and your own future careers as well. So please give a virtual hearty round of applause to all of our speakers. We so appreciate all of your expert insights across fields and from both academia and also the communities of being a chef and farmer and activist. It's been so inspiring. Thank you all for bringing such energy today to this virtual Zoom space. It really builds a strong sense of community. And I love seeing that there's people exchanging uh, ideas about building food mutual aid aid initiatives in their own neighborhoods. And so I can see that change is already happening. So thank you all again.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this health equity seminar featured on our center's podcast, UCLA Live Well. To watch the full video of this seminar and for more information on our future health equity seminars, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu. Today's podcast was brought to you by Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and
5: well-being.